Let's open our Bibles to Acts, if you will, and we'll go to chapter 15 to start. And what I want you to notice beginning in Acts 15 is that God's desire is for each local congregation to be strong. God doesn't just want a church to exist. He wants that local church to be strong. In Acts 15, after the letter had been received by the church at Antioch and they received encouragement from it, Verse 32 says, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. All I want you to see is they were strengthened and God wanted them to be strengthened. Let's go to chapter 16 and notice at verse 5. On the third missionary journey, or the second missionary journey rather, as they go out revisiting churches at Iconium and uh, Antioch and uh, Iconium and Lystra and Derby. As they re revisit those churches, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. What I want you to see is all of these churches, four mentioned in this context, that were strengthened. God wants local congregations to be strong. Let's go over to the book of Ephesians, if you will. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. And notice in Ephesians 3 and in verse 16... That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. God wanted the church at Ephesus to be strong. He wants them to be strengthened. One more before we leave that point. Let's go to the book of Colossians chapter 1. And notice in verse 11. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And the text says that he wants them to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. What I'm learning from that is God wants each local congregation to be strong. Now, if these seven churches, counting the four in Acts 16, were to be strong, then all local congregations and all churches, God wants to be strong. If God wanted these to be strong, then he wants the church here to be strong. In other words, if God wanted all of those seven churches to be strong, he wants all churches to be strong, and he wants this one to be a strong church. God wants local churches to be strong. Since the Bible speaks of strong churches, that implies there's a possibility that a church could be weak in some fashion. They may be weak in their doctrine. They may be weak in their practice. They may be weak in a number of areas that we'll explore as we go further. So let's talk this morning about marks of a strong church. Every one of us need to know the marks of a strong church. This is not just for elders and leaders saying, you know what, we need to lead the church in a strong fashion to make it a strong church. But everyone contributes to the strength of a local church. So what are the marks of a strong church? Perhaps as you look around and you look at different churches, maybe you move to another part of the country, you say, I want to be a part of a good church. I want to find a strong church. What are the marks of a strong church? What are they? Well, let's begin with this. Here's a mark and a characteristic of a strong church, and that is they have respect for authority. A strong church is a church that has respect for authority. Let's look at some very simple, basic passages. A church can only do what's authorized. A church can only practice what is authorized. Let's notice in Hebrews chapter 8, we alluded to this passage this morning in Bible class, that the Old Testament system served as a type and a shadow or a pattern of greater things to come. 
And the text says, who serve as a copy of the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. If that which was the type or the shadow of the copy had to be made according to the pattern, how much more so the real and the true has to be made according to the pattern. So I'm learning from that there is a pattern. Colossians 3.17 says we must do all things in the name of Christ. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and verse 7 shows to do something in the name of another means by their power or by their authority. We must function by the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's another passage we might add to that. 2 John verse 9, we are to abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. Whoever goes onward or beyond the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. But the one who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. That is, we are in fellowship with God when we abide within the doctrine. We no longer have fellowship with God when we go outside the realms of the doctrine of Christ. But I want to suggest to you that some local churches have little or no respect for authority. They, like Judah of old, as you studied on Wednesday night in in the book of Jeremiah, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 6 and notice in verse 16, when they were urged by God to walk in the old paths, their response was, we will not walk in it. There are some churches who have little or no respect for authority, like Judah, they say, we're not going to abide by the authority. We're not interested in abiding by authority. Just turn over to 1 Chronicles, if you will. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And I want you to notice like Israel of old, some churches are like Israel of old who have no interest at all in inquiring of the Lord. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, verse 13 says, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. Now notice verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. Some are not interested in inquiring of the Lord. There is little or no discussion in some churches about authority. Very little question ever raised. What did the Lord say about this subject? What did the Lord say about this practice? What did the Lord say about this doctrine? Where can we find this in the scriptures? Or where is the authority for this practice? There are some churches where you could introduce some new practice and never a question raised. Is there any Bible authority for that? Where is this found in the scriptures? That's because there perhaps has been a lack of teaching along that line. A strong church gives repeated and great emphasis to authority. That is, we look to the Word of God for direction. Let's go to the book of Acts, if you will, chapter 18. Go to Acts chapter 18. And notice in verse 11, that as Paul had spent some time in the church at Corinth, a year and a half, the text says at verse 11, he was there teaching the Word of God among them. Why is he teaching the Word of God? That's the standard of practice. That is the foundation of all, looking to the Word of God for their direction. Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 32 told the elders of the church at Ephesus, I commend you to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up. Churches that are strong churches will raise the question, where is the authority for this practice before they begin it? Where does the Bible talk about this? Where is there any scripture that authorizes us to function in this fashion? And so I suggest to you one of the marks of a strong church is a church that has respect for authority. But secondly, a mark of a strong church is that it has distinctive preaching. 
It has distinctive preaching. We must preach the whole counsel of God. The church is responsible for the spread of the gospel. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 15. The word that is preached and disseminated must be the message that includes the whole revelation of God. Let's go back to Acts 20 and verse 7. This was Paul talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus and he said, The time that I spent with you, here's what I did. He said, I did not shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I like the New Century rendering of that. I taught you everything God wants you to know. I like that. In other words, I didn't hold back from anything the revelation of God had for you. I preached to you the whole counsel of God. Those who preach and, must, and teach must speak as the oracles of God, the sayings of God, whatever those sayings may be, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 2. What that simply means is there's no part of the truth that should be avoided unless lest we ruffle feathers. And there will be feathers ruffled when you preach some portions of truth. You preach on something that someone that hits them the wrong way and feathers are going to be ruffled a little bit. And Paul was not the kind of man to shun preaching the whole council lest he ruffle feathers somehow. He would preach whatever needed to be preached lest he be offensive to God. I want to suggest to you that some churches are not dealing with topics and issues that may upset some of their members. There may be some who believe a doctrine. They're not going to touch on that. They may have a practice. They're not going to touch on that. They may be involved in sin. They're not going to touch on that. They're not preaching the whole counsel of God. I want to suggest to you the message of the gospel is a distinctive message. And that's why we talk about distinctive preaching. Let's go to 1 John chapter one and, or 4 and in verse 1. John told his writer or his readers to try the spirits whether they are of God. Put them to the test. Then verse 6 he says, and let me paraphrase and you read through the verse and see if this is not what it's saying. Here's how you know whether it's of God or not. Those who listen to the apostles are of God. Those who do not listen to the apostles, their teaching is contrary to that, are not of God. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is a distinction and a difference between truth and the errors of men. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 15, if you will, in verse 13. And I want you to see there is a distinction in Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 13 between the way of God and the ways of men. He answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. So there's the ways of men and there's the ways of God and there's a big difference. That means the truth of the gospel is distinctive. I want to suggest to you that the distinctive message includes the one New Testament church. In Ephesians 4 and verse 4, there is one body. That means there's one church. There's not a plurality. Denominationalism is contrary to the will of God. That's the distinctive nature of the gospel. The distinctive gospel includes things like baptism being essential. That's not taught everywhere. Not even among some of our own brethren is that emphasized and taught, lest again we ruffle some feathers. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The distinctive message includes there is no Bible authority for mechanical instruments of music. We cannot find that within the doctrine of Christ. That's a distinctive message. The Lord's Supper every first day of the week, as in Acts 20 and verse 7, is a distinctive message. A sound church and a strong church is a church that indeed has distinctive preaching. But may I suggest to you that soft or non-distinctive preaching 
quite often is hard to identify. Listen to this carefully. What I mean by that, it is not what one preaches and says that makes his preaching soft. It is what is not said that makes it soft. Sometimes some Christian will ask me, what about this church here and the preacher over there? Would you recommend them? Are they sound? And my response might be, well, I don't know of any error that's taught, but, but they have a reputation and he has a reputation for being soft. What do you mean being soft? He doesn't deal with certain things. There are certain questions and issues he never deals with. At least that's the reputation he has. So somebody will go and they'll listen to him one Sunday night and they come back and say, you know what, he taught the truth. I heard a lesson and it was good. Well, sure it was. Sure it was. Sure it was good. And I heard another lesson. And he didn't teach in error. We didn't say he taught error. What we're saying is there's not what he's teaching that's wrong. It's what he's not saying it's what's not being said that makes the preaching non-distinctive and soft. Some local churches fill their pulpit with messages that could be preached in any denomination. And I well recognize that there are, not every sermon is going to be distinctive in its nature. We might have a lesson on the, the love of God. We might have a, a lesson on, on forgiving one another. We might have a lesson on uh, how to treat one another. We might have a lesson on the golden rule and making application in our life. And so those could be preached anywhere. I recognize that. But what I'm suggesting to you is there's some local churches among our brethren where you could take a whole series of sermons for a whole year and preach them in any denomination and they would never ruffle any feathers because the preaching is non-distinctive. What is a mark of a strong church? A strong church is one that has respect for authority and there is distinctive preaching. And thirdly, elders that lead and watch. A strong church is a church that has elders that lead and they watch. Let's talk about elders' role and elders' work. Let's go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Here's elders' role and here's their work. Acts chapter 20, Paul again, we've made reference twice to Acts chapter 20. Of the work, or, or reference to Paul's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And here's what he said to those elders of the church at Ephesus. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. What am I learning from that? They have the oversight. They have the leadership. Is there authority? Yes, there's some authority there, but it has to do with the responsibility. They have the oversight given by God, Acts 20 and in verse 7. Let's enhance our understanding of that by going to 1 Peter chapter 5, a second passage dealing with the same principle. Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, whom a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. They have the oversight. That's their role. But secondly, mention something else about their role. They watch for souls. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 had mentioned elders. But I'm more interested in verse 17 which says, obey those who rule over you, those who have the oversight, that's elders, and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. That's part of their role. They're watching for souls. They're watching for dangers concerning the souls. They're watching for how they can help those souls. They're not so much interested in physical welfare as they are the spiritual welfare of their members. Now go to Titus chapter 1 with me. Let's think about a concept. And when I say a concept, 
If this were a Bible class and I were to ask, what is Titus 1 about? And someone would say, well, I'll tell you what, it's about the qualifications of elders. And you're right about that. That's not wrong. It does deal with the qualifications of elders. But I'm convinced that his point about these elders that meet these qualifications fits into the context of the theme of the book. I want you to notice this word sound. Notice this word sound as it's used in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 2. Notice in Titus 1 and in verse 9, he mentions sound doctrine. Drop down to Titus chapter 1 and verse 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Wholesome, healthy in their faith. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1, sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 2, sound in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 8, sound speech which cannot be condemned. He talks about being sound in the faith repeatedly through the book. Now beginning at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking upon elders in every city where I command you. And then he begins to list the qualifications. And quite often we get bogged down in, in those, and those are important qualifications, by the way, and we need to get bogged down. But we get bogged down in what the meaning of those qualifications are, and we overlook the fact of the point in the context that these elders are put in place to guard and protect sound faith. That's what he's talking about. Sound in the faith. Look at verse 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's not far from the context of the qualifications. So what is their role? They're guarding and protecting sound faith. That's their role and their responsibility. That being in mind, I want to suggest to you that a strong church has elders that will lead versus having to be led. Perhaps you've not seen much of this, but I have in, in places where maybe I've worked in, in places or maybe visited in meetings or talked to brethren about the possibility of moving there where I get the impression these elders will make the right decision as long as you lead them to that right decision. They're not leaders, they're being led. Elders that are a part of a strong church are elders that will lead versus being led. Perhaps some elders are like the, the man, there's a group of people running down the road, and about a minute behind them here comes a single man running by himself. And he stopped and asked someone, said, where did you see the group go? And he said, they went that way. Why? And he said, I've got to catch up with them. I'm their leader. Well, he's running a little behind. And some elders are like that. I'm leading them, but I'm waiting for them to show me the direction to go. A strong church is a church that has elders that lead versus having to be led. Furthermore, they watch for dangers. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. We keep coming back to Acts 20. But I want you to notice what Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And notice beginning at verse 29, that he said, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's danger ahead. You elders need to take heed to this. From among your own selves will men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Oh, there could be some danger creep in that causes some disciples to lose their souls. So what do you do about that? Look at verse 31. Therefore watch and remember that for, the, for three years I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. What is he telling me? You need to watch and you need to remember and you need to take heed. You need to pay attention. Take the oversight. Because a strong church is a church that has elders that watch for dangers. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 6. 
This is talking about the perilous times. Let's get the text and then we'll come back to the screen before you make the application. This is talking about perilous times. And beginning at verse 6, here's how men advance and promote the perilous times. And one of the ways that is done, look at verse 6. For of this sort are those who creep into households, making captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away with various lies. How is it that evil sometimes is promoted? It's sometimes promoted under stealth and in the darkness of the night, not out in the open. So suppose someone comes and, and we bring them into the pulpit and they begin to teach error. That's easy to deal with. What's a greater danger is someone who slips in and they begin to teach privately and undercover into the darkness of the night. It's happened in church after church. Someone had their agenda. They're, they're sowing their seed and they're planting their seeds of doubt. And they're working undercover. They wouldn't advocate their concepts openly and publicly, but they're going to do that undercover and under darkness. And what I'm here suggesting to you is a strong church is a church that has elders that will be careful about how problems develop undercover. Go to 3 John, verse 9. A strong church is a church that has elders that are well prepared to deal with one who is a diatrophies. What do we mean by the diatrophies? John wrote in 3 John verse 9 saying, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence. Other translations said he wanted the first place. He wanted to be the big dog. He wanted to be the big cheese. He wants to be the one in charge. And he pratted against us, he said. And what this passage is warning us about is and telling us that a strong church is a church that has elders that is well prepared to deal with one who tries to be a Diotrephes. It will not happen, and it cannot happen when elders are doing their job. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 14. A strong church is a church that has elders that show concern for those who show some sign of weakness. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verse 14. There are three classes of people that are mentioned here. There, he said, exhort the, you, I exhort you, brethren, warn the unruly. Same word for disorderly. They need to be warned. Comfort the faint-hearted, the discouraged, and then uphold the weak. A strong church is a church that has elders that will show concern for those that show weakness and try to lead them back in the right direction. What are the marks of a strong church? Respect for authority, distinctive preaching, elders that lead and watch. And number four is a church where discipline is practiced. And probably the very mention of the word discipline, you think immediately we're talking about withdrawal. But I want to suggest to you that discipline involves instruction and correction. And I will say to you, as I would say, often as elders, we go to talk to someone as not living as they should. They may ask immediately the very first question they ask, are you thinking about withdrawing from us? And our response usually is, that's not even on our radar right now. We're not even thinking about that. We're thinking about instruction and correction is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about encouragement. That's part of discipline. Let's look in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. And so let's get this concept before our minds. Discipline involves more than withdrawing. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Chastening. Look at the word chastening. The English standard says discipline of the Lord. 
Apparently, it has the purpose of correcting because do not despise the chastening nor detest his correction. So here, discipline is something that is used to correct. That it might involve more than simply instruction, but it would include instruction there. Let's go to the 13th division of the same book, Proverbs 13, and notice verse 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The word discipline, Strong says, it means reproof, warning, instruction, and also of restraint. So as you deal with your children and you give some restraint to something, that's part of your discipline. Your instruction, your warning is part of that. Let's go to another passage in the book of Proverbs, this time the 23rd division and in verse 13. Do not withhold correction from a child. Do not withhold correction from a child, but if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Correction, the New American Standard translates that discipline. By the way, that's the same word for instruction in the previous verse. What I'm trying to drive home, the principle is that instruction and correction is, is discipline as defined by the Old Testament. But the same thing is true in the New Testament. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness. The word instruction Footnote in the New King James will say training or discipline. The same word translated training in Ephesians chapter 6, translated chastening of the Lord in Hebrews chapter 12. Now I don't want to get too deep into the matter, but I want you to see what Thayer says about this word that's translated instruction. Thayer says the word can mean the whole training and education of children, whatever in adults also cultivates the soul by correcting mistakes and curbing the passions. Instruction which aims at the increase of virtue. See, that's discipline. That's what I'm trying to drive at. That's, a, that's discipline. When, when there is instruction given from the scriptures that changes, then that is discipline. That's the point. Any teaching, any warning, any encouragement that's designed to make a change for the better is discipline. A strong church is a church where discipline is practiced. There's teaching directed to that. There's correction directed to that. There is encouragement directed to that. Discipline may reach the point of withdrawing. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Time would fail us to get all the details of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but suffice it to say that chapter 5 deals with a fornicator at Corinth who had not been dealt with as he should. There was a danger of this corrupting the whole church according to verse 6. And notice beginning at verse 4, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Comes a time that you take action and you withdraw from him. That same term is used, or that term rather, is used in 2 Thessalonians. In the case of the Thessalonian problem, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. He's dealing with those who are walking disorderly, and notice what he says about them. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is by his authority, you, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the, to the tradition which he received from us. What's the purpose of that? Drop down at verse 14. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's verse 15. But it's that he might be ashamed. 
Time would fail us to go in detail with either case, but discipline may reach the point of withdrawing. I want to suggest to you there are many local churches that do not practice church discipline. I want to ask some elders who were grappling with some problems, some internal problems, some friction and some strife and, and factions, about five factions in the local church. How long has it been since you've withdrawn from anyone? And they said, well, let's think about that a little bit. Um, probably close to 30 years. Really? There's been no one walking disorderly in your midst for 30 years? What I'm suggesting is many local churches do not practice. Church discipline. Little teaching that condemns what's going on within those churches. Get this note very carefully. People generally know the reputation of a local church. And they usually seek out a church that will tolerate them. I find that true over and over again. In every area I've lived, <clears throat> there are churches that have a reputation for being strong and very conservative, and then there are some that have a reputation for being a little looser and more tolerant. When someone has a problem in their marriage or someone has a problem in their moral life, <clears throat> it doesn't take them long to figure out where they're going to land. They're going to seek out that church that's going to tolerate them. They will accept them, will raise no questions about what they're doing and what they're practicing or anything about what they've done in their past. Nothing's going to be asked. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 one more time. <clears throat> and I want you to notice with me at verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 6, Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What I'm saying here is, or what Paul is saying, the lack of discipline is asking for more problems. You see, you've got this problem of one fornicator in your midst. You tolerate that, and the next thing you know, you're going to have two fornicators. And the next thing you know, you're going to have three, and the next thing you're going to have four. And then how are you going to deal with it? Because anyone that comes along and you raise questions about their immorality, they're going to say, well, others are doing the same thing. You haven't said a word to them. You're asking for problems. What are the marks of a strong church? A strong church is careful who they fellowship. A strong church is careful who they fellowship. Fellowship is based upon abiding in truth. Let's go to the book of 1 John and notice some things in the context of 1 John. So let's turn over to 1 John chapter 1. And I want you to notice beginning at verse 1 through verse 5, the revelation of God was delivered by faithful witnesses. We won't read all of the five, five verses, but let's scan and get some of the points. Beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and handled concerning the word of life. Now notice at verse 2. The life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you. So here is the revelation of God that was delivered by faithful witnesses. You can say we've seen, we've heard. Here are the witnesses to the fact. Now verse 6 says, revelation, or tells me, or implies that revelation, that revelation that came from faithful witnesses is the basis for truth. If we say we have no fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What truth? Where did that truth come from? That's the revelation from the faithful witnesses that we saw in verses 1 to 5. Now verse 7. 
That same revelation, the truth, is the basis for fellowship. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. What is the light and how do we know what the light is? From that revelation that came from faithful witnesses, that is the basis for truth, is the basis for fellowship. That is walking and abiding in truth. Now notice in 1 John chapter 2 beginning at verse 3, the commandments are the basis for having fellowship with God. The commandments are the basis. Notice beginning at verse 3. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And we could go on and make the same point. But the commandments, the truth, is the basis for having fellowship with God. Look at verse 7, the commandment is the same as the word. In other words, the word or abiding in the word or abiding in truth, which is mentioned all through 1 John and 2 John as well, is the basis for fellowship. Now, I want to suggest to you in light of that principle, there are some local churches that give very little consideration about who they fellowship. How so? They may accept almost anyone no matter what they believe or practice or what their marital status may be. That is, they, they make them a part of the local church. They use them in their local assemblies, use them in their teaching program, and they may have never asked a question about where they come from. May never have inquired about what they believe. May never have asked the first question about their marital status. That's happened time and again. Some of those same churches will have men for gospel meetings with little consideration of where they stand on various issues. And when it's pointed out, did you know he taught error on this subject? They may say, yeah, but if we've told him we disagree with that, and consequently we're going to have him come in our meeting anyway. Now I want you to notice something in Acts chapter 9. Turn there with me in Acts chapter 9. This is an important passage on this point. Well, I want you to notice in light of this, careful who they fellowship. The church at Jerusalem would not accept Saul after his conversion until Barnabas vouched for him. Something we learn from that. Look at verse 26. This is following his conversion earlier in the chapter. And when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Call it what you wish. He wanted to identify with them. He wanted to be a part of the church. Wanted to place membership. He wanted to join them. However you want to word that, he wanted to be a part of that local church. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. He had a reputation, by the way. And so I learned, first of all, from verse 26, they didn't accept him just on the basis that he wanted to, to be a part of that. What'd they do? They sought information not only from him, but from others. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he spoke to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, they had confidence in Barnabas. They knew Barnabas was going to level with. And so Barnabas says, he's a good man. He was converted. Let me tell you about his conversion. Let me tell you what happened to him on the road to Damascus, how Ananias preached the gospel to him and he was baptized. And not only that, he went and preached Christ, the very one he was opposing. He's a good man. You ought to accept him. Now verse 28. So it was. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. What does that mean? He joined the church at Jerusalem. He became part of them. 
So here's what I'm learning from that, from Acts chapter 9. Churches have a right and a responsibility to ask questions about people who seek to identify. They have every right. Sometimes people are offended by that when the elders say, well, we want to sit down and talk with you before you identify with this church. But most of you that we sit down and talked with have told us, not only are we not offended, we would have been offended if you didn't ask questions. Because what you're doing is you're trying to maintain purity within a local church. What I'm trying to tell you is a local church is very careful. A strong church is careful about who they fellowship. Number six. Marks of a strong church is a church that takes a stand against sin and against worldliness. What do we mean by taking a stand? It means they take a position on the subject. And they deal with it by teaching on that subject and addressing those who participate. There are churches where you may talk to the preacher and he says, well, I believe that to be wrong. I, I, for me, it's wrong. When have you preached a sermon on that? He hadn't in a while. Maybe never. You go to the elders and, well, they may have a position on that, but they're not teaching on it. They're not dealing with people. So what do we mean by, by sin and worldliness? Well, by sin and worldliness, maybe things like the dance and the prom, which is a violation of the principle of lewdness and lasciviousness being wrong. The unchaste handling of affairs of males and females. There are churches where you won't hear a word about dancing. You won't hear a word about it being sinful. I held a meeting once where I knew there was a church that had a problem with dancing, and I announced on Sunday, Tuesday, I'm going to deal with dancing. We had half the crowd gone on Tuesday night. Literally half of the crowd was not there. They didn't come. They didn't want to hear it. They hadn't heard much on that. What do I mean by sin and worldliness? Dealing with immodesty. Dealing with what is immodest and what's not. Well, the kind of outfits that fit the principle of nakedness. Dealing with social drinking. And dealing with unscriptural marriages that do not fit Matthew 19 and in verse 9. Or gambling. And that's just the beginning of the list. What I'm suggesting to you is a strong church is a church that takes a stand on those issues. And deals with those issues and talks about those issues and addresses people who are guilty of those issues. That's a mark of a strong church. But one last thing in the lesson is yours. Mark of a strong church is a church that takes a stand on current issues. Now when a church will not stand on current issues indeed, that church is a weak church. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the church at Antioch, the church at Colossae, the church at Thessalonica, unwilling to take a stand on Judaism or circumcision? See, that was the issue of the day. That was the big issue dividing people. That was the issue that was hot in Acts 15. Is circumcision binding or not? Can you imagine the elders over at Antioch saying, well, we don't really want to address that because, you see, if we address that, that might, we might lose some people over that issue. Can you imagine the church at Colossae? And if it's a strong church and it has elders, that those elders would not address the Colossian heresy? Can you imagine the church at Thessalonica not taking a stand? 
Can you imagine them using men that taught error on those subjects? Can you imagine the church at Antioch saying, we don't believe circumcision is binding, but we're going to have a special series with a man who does believe it's binding, but we don't really think he's going to say anything about that. We've told him we don't agree with that. Can you imagine? I want to suggest to you many churches now will not stand. There's little or no teaching on the current issues. They tolerate error and those who may practice the error. And they use men. Preachers who they know teach error. What are some of the current issues that might be included? Like divorce and remarriage. There are churches where you'll hear little or no teaching on divorce and remarriage. Once you have a church where the preacher believed error on divorce and remarriage, but he agreed not to teach on it. Which means he wasn't teaching his error, but neither was he teaching the truth. And some of their members observed to me that, you know what, my children will grow up here learning not error, but they won't even learn the truth on that subject. They'll never know what the truth is on divorce and remarriage. Or maybe the issue of fellowship. Who can we fellowship? And can we have fellowship broader than 1 John 1 and 7 or 2 John verse 9? Or what about the creation issue? You see, there have been brethren who've argued that creation of Genesis 1 and 2 happened over periods of millions and millions of years. What about that issue? And that the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 was not real. And the ages of Genesis 5 are exaggerated. Or what about the AD 70 doctrine that teaches Jesus Christ has already returned? His second coming has already occurred. Or the house church movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm suggesting to you is a church that is a strong church is a church that takes a stand on current issues. What are some marks of a strong church? God wants every local church to be a strong church. We saw that in the beginning in Acts chapter 15, Acts 16, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, God wants every church to be a strong church. What are some marks? This is not an exhaustive list. And someone may be well able to say when I get through, you know what, you could have said, and you're right, and we could have gone on, and we could go on, and we could go at point number 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and keep on. But we cannot argue that these are not marks of a strong church. A church that respects authority, has distinctive preaching, Elders that lead and watch discipline is practiced. They're careful who they fellowship. They stand against sin and against worldliness, and they take a stand on current issues. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?